I don't think enough moms are educated and I don't think enough moms realize that the most important thing in your labor and delivery is your voice. It is your voice. You need to be able to use your voice to say no. And I'm very happy that I found the courage to do so. It wasn't, it didn't come easy. It may sound like it did, easier said than done, but it felt so freeing afterwards to know that I did that for myself. Giving birth is one of the most significant events of your life. Sadly, the joy that you should feel can often be replaced with anxiety and helplessness instead. As a labor and delivery nurse, I'm revealing insider information to educate you, reassure you, and decrease your fear. In this podcast, you'll hear empowering birth stories and experts weigh in on a range of topics. Being Jewish also has me exploring Judaism's influence on the reproductive experience. However, I speak to anyone wishing to navigate their journey with more joy and confidence. I'm your host, Hani Fingerer, and you're listening to the Happy Birthway Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Happy Birthway Podcast. In this episode, we are going to discuss Rachel Safer's birth story. So this is part two of her entire pregnancy and birth journey to little AY. So you were saying that you were 40 weeks, just so tired of being pregnant, just so done. And like I said, the end is very hard because otherwise no one would want to go into labor. I hit my due date. I'm like, okay, get out. Even before two weeks before my due date, I was like, you're fully cooked 37 weeks, get out. And I tried everything. I tried the red raspberry leaf tea and pineapple and squatting galore and all the tips and tricks, curb walking, all these weird things I Googled. Nothing worked. This baby is in every regard his father, comes on his own time. Once again, he he was all nice and cozy and they're doing great while mom was suffering. Suffering, bouncing on balls nonstop, like my birthing ball and me were never apart. I was either rocking on it or bouncing or it was just always with me. And Sukkis came, we stayed by family friends every morning. Like they knew my due date was then. So they were like, oh, you're still here? (laughs) You didn't leave to the hospital yet? I'm like, no, I didn't. And you did everything you could, all of those ideas for natural induction, red raspberry leaf tea, and the curb walking, which is putting one foot on a curb and one foot on the street. So it's kind of um, uneven. And that actually, the reason why that can work, it's great for labor too, is that it keeps your pelvis um, moving and open in different directions. And that helps baby's head rotate and descend. And what I like to say with all of these natural induction methods is that um, they typically will work if your cervix is soft and ripe and already something is starting up over there, not actual full-blown labor, but something's just starting up. So it's kind of soft and ripe and, you know, needs a little knock over the head. And typically that's what gets the labor to work. But if you're shut tight, like I was um, for my pregnancies, if you're shut tight, then they're unlikely to work, but they won't hurt. Gives you something to do at the end. It definitely gives you something to do. It didn't work for me. And you were at family on Sukkis, was, which was when you were due? Yes, the last day. So for those who are unaffiliated, Sukkis is the um, Feast of Tabernacles that is celebrated. Um, it's a Jewish, major Jewish holiday that happens in the fall where we build Sukkot, which are... Uh, little temporary huts. We decorate them. It's very festive. And um, we celebrate for seven days. So you were by family then, and you said it was the last day? Yeah, I was due the last day. I was very ready. Nothing happened. I felt Braxton Hicks a few times, but I also wasn't drinking enough water classic those like irritability dehydration contractions that really aren't gonna dilate you much yes it's very important to drink so that was sunday the holiday ended sunday night and monday i had an appointment and 
my OB said, Monday, if nothing's happened yet, I could induce you. We could have a discussion. We went in Monday morning at 9.30. I was put on the monitor for 20 minutes just to see if I had any contractions. I was having contractions, but they were very, very light and very far apart. I was one to two centimeters dilated and I took off the monitor, went into his office and he said, okay, these are your options. I can induce you today or I can induce you tomorrow. If you don't want to be induced today, we could see if you go into labor naturally by tomorrow, but if it's not done by tomorrow night, I'm going to have to induce you. I don't want you going longer than mid of 40 weeks. And based on how close it would be to Shabbos, I figured, okay, it's COVID still. I don't want to be left in the hospital alone. And I knew I was having a boy. So I knew we would be having a Shalom Zachor, which is a celebration of having a baby boy um, in Judaism the first Friday night after the baby is born. So my OB said, you can either be discharged by then and you could be home, but that doesn't mean the baby will be. So you could either stay with the baby in the hospital. He said, but I don't know how observant you are, but I know that Jews usually like the husband will be gone anyways Friday night, unless it's walking distance, they'll, they'll walk back and forth. And it was very much so not walking distance for us. It was a 25 minute drive. So... I was just like, okay, well, if you induced me on Tuesday, do you think that that's cutting it close? He's like, yes, if you want to make sure both of you are out of the hospital, you should go meet me at the hospital now. And I'm curious, um, because being that it's Tuesday, well, this was Monday at your appointment with him, right? Mm -hmm. So being that it was Monday and your goal was to have a vaginal delivery and typically after vaginal delivery, the usual length of stay in the hospital is two midnights or somewhere about 48 hours. So, I mean, if you think about it, Monday or Tuesday is pretty early on in the week, but did he, was it because he explained to you that an induction can take a little bit of a longer yeah. process, especially for a first time mom? I've had patients that easily can have um, the induction process for their first baby last three days long. Oh my gosh. That's not an abnormal finding, but you know, even just 24 plus hours can be possible. So was that kind of why he told you you might be cutting it close? Yeah. Because maybe the baby wouldn't be born until Wednesday or even Thursday if you had an induction on Tuesday. Yes. Yeah, so he said that if he induced me Monday, chances are I'd probably give birth Tuesday, but I could give birth Wednesday. And then he said if he induced me Tuesday, it could be that I would give birth Wednesday or Thursday, but I would still need that waiting period before I leave and the baby leaves. Yeah. And it's great that he prepared you for it that way. I don't know if all providers prepare first time parents who are undergoing the induction process for the fact that it might be a few days long. And pre-COVID, they would like walk in with all their baby gear and like, you know, their full support team when they were like shut tight, closed. And if your cervix is not dilated at all, then it's much more likely to take longer since we have to soften your cervix. Your cervix was already soft. It was, you know, one to two centimeters. So that's a great head start. And it's a lot more likely that you're going to give birth within the next 24 hours when your cervix is soft. So you definitely had that going in your favor. Yes. Um, we were told to meet at the hospital right away. And I then started getting nervous. I wanted the baby out so badly. But then I was like, Ooh! no <laughs> we're not going am i ready am i not ready and this happens even like right before the baby's born oh, you're yes. like no i'm not ready i just want to go home bye yes and that actually did happen we'll get to that it's so common yeah i went to our apartment we got our stuff i told my husband we need to be out right away meet at the hospital in 30 minutes he said and i sat in a bath and my husband kept saying rachel we need to go and i'm like <laughs> I'm bathing. I'm not getting out. I'm relaxing right now. Leave me alone. And he's just like, no, no. We said we would meet him at the hospital. We have to go. We finally got to the hospital at 1.30. Walked in. They put us in the waiting room. And we waited for two and a half hours. Ugh. Two and a half hours later, 
the labor and delivery nurse said, I'm so sorry you're waiting so long. We still don't have a bed available for you. Did they explain to you why you were waiting so long more than just we don't have a bed available? No. So I want to give you some background that I think can help. What happens is, is for someone like you, who we would at this point call, quote unquote, an elective induction, where um, it may not be as urgent as other people who have to come in for, you know, a C-section or other health complication inductions. So they view it as we never know what's going on in the labor and delivery unit. Like we say, Mm -hmm. the labor bus can pull up and we can have 10 women walk in all at once, you know, laboring, and then they'll have to bump up all of the scheduled procedures, which is, or scheduled events as we call them in the hospital. So sounds like you came at a time where unfortunately um, something like that was going on. And when you're having an induction, you get a drug called Pitocin, which Mm -hmm. is considered a high alert medication, meaning you need to have a nurse that watches the patient very closely because Pitocin is a great tool, but it also has potential for harm. So we want to make sure that there is truly a safe amount of staff to be able to watch you and take care of you in the safest way possible. When I explain that to patients, sometimes it kind of makes it feel a little less annoying and disappointing and upsetting when they learn that we're waiting for the safe amount of staff to take care of you in the way that you deserve to be taken care of. That would have been nice to know. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, that when that when you get that context, you understand it better. There's a lot of areas in labor and delivery where we really don't have control over how things proceed. It's not like elective surgery. People will just walk in and bump up other people and it can be super duper annoying and lucky you, (laughs) this was your situation. So you had to go, you decided to go home and come back the next day? No, so the labor and delivery nurse said, leave, go to the mall, Go get something to eat, she said, because once you're in, you're not eating until you're out. Oh, yeah. And pro tip for anybody undergoing induction, and I'm not saying a C-section, I'm saying an induction, and uh, provided that your doctor or midwife doesn't tell you that this is contraindicated, take a really nice, good shower and eat a really nice, good, not too heavy, but good meal. <laughs> yes, very important. I ask my patients when I admit them if they ate anything before they came and sometimes they'll say no because they're so nervous and I tell them, okay, we're not starting anything right now. You first need to make sure that you eat. You need the energy. You really need that energy. So the nurse told you, go to the mall, eat something. Yes, we went to the mall. It was so very difficult to walk around with a mask on in the mall, waddling around. I was getting so hot and... It was in Roosevelt Fields, so anybody who lives in our area really knows that there is a kosher bagel boss around there. So my husband and I went there and it was time for them to close their doors. I got to the door when the lady was literally turning the key and I knocked on the door and I was just, I'm I'm about to go into labor and I was told to go get food. Can I please just have a bagel? <laughs> she was she looked at me and she was like, Oh honey, sure, like you're nuts, but of course. So I got my bagel, I got my cup of fruit, I was eating it very happily, and five o'clock came around, I called the hospital, said, Can I come in? I'll be there in fifteen minutes. They said yes, we'll have a bed for you, no problem. And then they told me that the reason I was waiting for so long was also because they didn't tell me what you told me, which would have been very nice to know. They told me my OB never told them I was coming. Hmm. So they weren't prepared for me. They had so many other things going on that they couldn't save a bed for me because they had no idea they were doing an elective induction. (laughs) So... Sometimes we can call an extra staff if we know that there's something extra that's being added on. So maybe, you know, maybe it would have been something like that, or maybe they would have pushed off some other procedures or events. Yeah. 
And this is not uncommon. Sometimes just things get lost in translation. Could be the OB told the secretary, oh, give the hospital a call, and maybe it, it got lost in communication somewhere. So unfortunately, this this happens, and unlucky you, it happened to you. <laughs> yes. We finally got put into a room, and I changed into my labor and delivery gown. I bought one from, I think, Kindred Bravely, and that is one amazing gown. It has openings from everywhere, and you can be covered everywhere. That's awesome. Kindred and Bravely. Okay, you'll give me the info. I'll put it in the episode show notes. I'll give you the link. It was wonderful. It was so wonderful. We got tested for COVID, so they told me up until then, my husband was in the hospital. He was in the waiting room, so that makes no sense to me. If your family member is already there and they test positive, they're already there. Yeah. You've already exposed people. Exactly. That's interesting to me that they retested you because at that point, CDC guidelines was that if you tested positive within 90 days, you should not be retested because you can get a false positive. Yes. I happened to go be induced in a private hospital. If I went to a public one like South Nassau, which is where I would have preferred to give birth, I would not have had to be tested. And I called both hospitals beforehand just to know what my risks would be with COVID and having my husband there or not. And South Nassau said, if you both had it and it's been 14 days since you've had it and you have no more symptoms, we're not testing you again. And Mercy, which is where I gave birth, said, oh, no, 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 we're going to test you. And if your husband's positive, you're going to he's going to have to go. And we all knew at that point that you could be positive, but really just have the dead cells of it lingering. It's only picking up if it's in your system. It's not showing you if it's dead or alive. Right. So positive, but not infectious anymore, not contagious anymore. Yes. So I was very nervous. Thank God we both came back negative which was such a godsend and oh my god I would have been biting my nails I was I was pulling my hair out I was just like pacing in the room finally they said you're both fine and when we were fine they thankfully didn't make us wear masks also which was so helpful I know that that's a huge source of anxiety for many pregnant people when it comes to having to wear masks during labor especially which is a time where I myself was a very sensory sensitive and like I hated the belt, I hated the monitors, I hated anything that was touching me. I don't know how I would have done with a mask or not, but I will say for anyone who's having to give birth at a place where they still require masks, um, surprisingly, many women do really, really well with it and will even say that they forgot that they were wearing one. So that can be reassuring. But, you know, at the end of the day, if your hospital does require that you wear a mask and you feel like you just can't cope with it, you know, try it in the beginning. But if it comes to a point where you feel like you can't cope with it, the staff is not going to suffocate you and like just make you wear it during labor because we understand how how much of a difficult situation that can be for someone. So I'm glad that you didn't have to do that. Me too. <laughs> Me too. That would have been really hard. That was something I was very anxious about. Thankfully, that worked in my favor. That was one of the only things I feel that worked in my favor. <laughs> so at 7.30 Monday night, I had Cervidil put in. And Cervidil is a hormone, a prostaglandin. It's like this tiny little waffle thing. They call it a tampon. I have no idea why, because it's like micro-sized compared to a tampon. Oh, completely micro-sized. I guess the string hanging out, that's the only equivalence. Yeah, so that's inserted into the vagina and it's typically usually kept in for 12 hours unless, you know, labor starts uh, sooner than that or the baby shows that baby doesn't like it. And again, it's a cervical ripening agent. It's not yet pitocin or oxytocin um, that's for the induction. It's just actually softening the cervix so that the cervix is more, so that the uterus is more sensitive to pitocin and was that what was the case for you? So we had it in at 1.30 in the morning. I went to go pee and it came out. So they told me when, if, when and if it comes out, call us immediately so we could just check you, see how far along you have gotten. And we can go from there to see what you need. I, the first two hours though on 
Cervidil. They tell you you need to stay in your bed. You cannot move. Um, that was really rough. I am not one who enjoys sitting still. I'm also not one who enjoys bedpans. And when labor's progressing, you need to use the bathroom often. And I remember the nurse telling me, it's okay to use the bedpan, everyone does it. And I just looked at her with this like demonic voice and I was like, it's not okay. And that's interesting because Different hospitals do different things. Where I work, we we don't um, tell patients that they have to stay, you know, for two hours and use a bedpan. Every hospital is different. I mean, we do tell patients at least for the first, you know, as long as they can to to stay still, if you will. I, I don't like to use the word still, but just staying in bed, just so that the cervidil can um, do what it needs, start doing what it needs to do over there. And then just really be careful when they have to get up and go pee. So I'm sorry that they made you have a bedpan. It was so funny because I felt like I had to use the bathroom so badly and I made everybody leave the room. But then I didn't know how to remove my bedpan, but I didn't want anybody to help me. So that was very interesting to figure out on my own. <laughs> um, I'm very independent. And I was just like, this is the most unnatural thing for me to be doing right now and obviously in, when you're in labor there's not much that's very glorified about it it's beautiful and everything but if you could say that it's you're in a dignified position you're not so <laughs> um that was very hard for me to to it was a hard pill to swallow we had a visit after the cervidil fell out from my ob and he was like Rachel, you're four centimeters along. I'm going to break your water. Nice. Four centimeters. So that was at 1.30 a.m. Yes. And I looked at him and I was like, no, 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 you're not. And he's like, oh, yes, I am. And then you feel gush. <laughs> and when I tell you, you feel like a gush of water. If you've ever been in an amusement park, the only thing I could describe it as for anybody who has not yet been pregnant or anyone who's a male and listening... <laughs> Like, if you've ever been to an amusement park and those big buckets of water at the water parks <laughs> filling and then you wait and wait and wait for it to spill out, like, that's what it feels like. And it's constant for a very long time. So at that point, was the conversation that, you know, since you're dilating nicely, um, was the was the plan just to break your water or was it also to start Pitocin at the same time? Just to break my water. And the reason why I asked is because ARAM, which stands for artificial rupture of membrane, um, which is the medical term for breaking water artificially, um, is a great way, actually, a great way to what we call augment, which is not induce, but augment because you're already in some form of labor. So it um, helps accelerate the process. It's a great way to do it without drugs or anything like that. Um, and what it does is once your water is broken, your baby's head is putting manual pressure against your cervix. So that can cause the contractions to be a lot more intense, but it can also shorten your labor. Um, so always ask your provider about the risks and benefits of it, but it can be a great way to make your labor go faster. And it's very reasonable to have a discussion with your provider about the risks and benefits and you decide for yourself and you can refuse as an informed refusal and say, it's not the right time for me right now. So just that people can know, I mean, it sounds like you, you knew what you knew what was happening and you did want it. You were just kind of nervous when yeah. you said, oh no, you're not. But um, just so people know, it, it's, it's not something you should be forced into. You have a conversation and decide for yourself, but it is definitely a great way to shorten labor. A funny note, when my husband proposed to me, I've known him for years and I knew I was saying yes, but when it came down to the moment and I saw him getting down on his knee, I was like pulling his arm up. I'm like, no, 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 no. And he's like, are you saying no to me? I'm like, no, I'm just trying to process this right now. <laughs> and he was laughing when I was saying no to my OB. He's like, Rachel, you have to stop doing that. <laughs> That's like, like when you didn't want to go any, to the hospital for your induction, you know? Yeah. He's like, anytime something like wonderful is happening that you're ready for, you're just like, no, 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 no. Like you can't let yourself just be in it. You just have to like, just put a halt on it for a minute. And he just always makes fun of me for it. 
we had my water broken and were you feeling any contractions were you feeling any pain they were pretty intense they were intense the, and this was the intensity this was before uh the cervidil came out and your water was broken or after this once the cervidil was put in they really started to progress with intensity anytime they came around you can't describe the pain that I was feeling. It was really, it was really a lot. Worse than when you had COVID? <laughs> yes, funny enough. I, I told my husband that if it's anything like what I was feeling during COVID, I don't think I could give birth. And it was worse. So that was interesting. But the, I, the difference being is that when you had COVID, you really did not want to go into labor and have the baby. Um, yes. So it was, it was kind of a different place to be in your mind a different pain with a different fear exactly well at, and at this point you felt like it was pain with purpose where you were going to have a baby you were doing this so so be it if this is the pain that you have to have to have the baby then you know it, it this is the pain it's over soon <laughs> that's the mindset it's gonna be over soon i had no epidural up until the cervidil fell out my husband was taking extremely hot towels and pressing them against my lower back. I was feeling the labor in my lower right side, mostly in the back, and it was excruciating to sit. It was so hard to put more pressure on my bottom with the baby already putting all that pressure there. I was, I needed to walk, I needed to do things. And once you have the epidural in, anybody who has had one knows you you really need to be stationary. So are you saying that this pain came when you had the epidural? Because we didn't get to the part where you asked for an epidural yet. No, it was beforehand. So once that pain was very bad, I said, you know, I think I'm ready for the epidural. And that was your plan all along, right? You were planning on having an epidural? I was very hesitant about it, but everybody kept saying... It seems scary to have a needle in your back, but when it works, it works, and it's wonderful. I didn't get to the point where it worked. <laughs> we're gonna cover that in a minute, but you know, going back with the epidural, you were kind of like undecided. Obviously, it seems scary to get that big needle in your back, but then at the same time, it seems nice to really have good pain relief. Yes. So people get to a certain point when they're kind of undecided, AKA, I'll see how it goes, a.k.a. when it, the going gets tough, you want that epidural. You know, some people are like very, um, some people are very determined that they do not want it. And other people are just like, well, let's see how it goes. Those are usually the people that are open to an epidural and probably get the epidural. But it just, it does seem scary to get a big needle on your back. But at a certain point, I'm sure you can confirm this, that pain is so bad, you don't care about what needle you're getting in your back. You just, you just yeah. want the pain relief. Yeah, there was a lot of anxiety once they came in the room and said, your husband has to leave the room so that there's no distractions, there's no extra movement. You really need to be very still. I mean, it's a needle going into your spine. That's very risky business. Did the anesthesiologist explain things to you beforehand about yes. the procedure, the risks, the benefits? Yes, he explained it all. And did you feel like you were in a state to even understand it or you were just like, just put it in, give it to me? Not really. I'm pretty much I told him to shut up and stop talking and yeah. just put it in. Mm -hmm. Yep. And usually when they say at the end of their speech, do you have any questions? The patient's like, how soon can you get it in? Yeah. Like, why are you still talking? That's my question. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you doing? And that's why I do like to tell people that it's smart to learn more about it before you are in that state of labor, you know, like during pregnancy, preferably, so that you kind of know ahead of time, because, you know, it's just hard to process things before it then. It I is. mean, it really is. It's just hard to process things when you're in that crazy intense state. Yeah. That's very, very true. So he put it in 30 minutes later. What, was the procedure as bad as you were afraid it was going to be? No, no, it really wasn't. I think that in the moment, your whole pregnancy and before you hit each step, you kind of work yourself up to think it's going to be so much scarier and worse than it is. And then you move past and you're like, oh, my gosh, I was able to do that. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't give ourselves enough credit for what we can handle. Mm -hmm. Our bodies are made to handle these things. And, you know, women used to not do it with epidurals, but 
many women have done it with epidurals. So Oh yeah. Oh yeah, and it's an intervention and we're so blessed to live in a time where we have choice. There was a time where women had no choices of any kind of medicinal pain relief for labor. And then there was a time when women were forced to have medicated um, labors, you know, and, and were given general anesthesia at the end when it was time for pushing and really didn't have a choice. And we're just told that this is how they need to do it. So today we're so lucky to live in a time where you can choose and epidurals can be a great, amazing thing. Yes, emphasis on the can be. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, and in about 10% of people, like we're gonna get to, um, they don't always fully work. And that's mm-hmm. why it is also at the same time important to prepare for coping with labor no matter what your plans are, um, because as we'll hear you tell us. I did not cope any of this I 45 minutes in was in even more pain than I was and I was like hmm and you were laying still and you were laying still which doesn't help yes laying still putting pressure on my bottom which is where I was feeling all that pain and it felt so much worse to put pressure there but you have to sit in bed. You have to be in that position if you yeah. have that in your back. In the beginning, yes, because the medicine spreads like gravity. So we want to be in kind of an even position so that when it, you know, again, the way it's supposed to work is that we want it to spread evenly on all sides and that you shouldn't be too flat on your back or just you know, on one side or the other. So in the beginning, you do, you can move around after that. But in the beginning, you do need to be kind of, you know, sitting in a a semi-upright position on your back. Yes, so that's the position I was in. And my whole right side, which is where I was feeling my labor to begin with, nothing was helping. It was getting worse and worse. So I buzzed the nurse, said, listen, I don't know what he put in. Maybe it was a placebo, but it ain't working. And she was like, it wasn't a placebo, Rachel. It was definitely the epidural. Maybe he needs to just adjust the catheter um, and just change the direction of it just a little more, push it more to your right side if that's where you're feeling most of the pain. So he did, and he said, call me in 30 minutes. Give it 30 minutes. Be patient. Fine. Give it 30 minutes. Even worse. I'm like, honey, I'm sure you're very educated on this and you do it daily. But for some reason, for me, it's not working. And I said, there's a myth with redheads that anesthesia doesn't work great with us. And I'm starting to believe it's very true. It's not an old wives tale. And he said to me, okay, I will give you a a shot of it, like a booster directly into your back in another spot. And it should completely wipe out your whole bottom half. Like you will not be able to move. He said to a point where you might not be able to feel yourself pushing, but you know, we might have to risk that if the pain is that bad. And I was like, honey, the pain is that bad. Knock me out. <laughs> like knock me out. And, and you, you had to reset up for that procedure, correct? Yes. And I told them they had to take out the first catheter and they placed it in a whole new spot all over again. And I said, listen, if you're going to do this, I'm already feeling my contractions. 50 times worse than what I was feeling when you first placed this. So I said, if you want me to be still and not paralyze me, my husband must be in the room. There's no way I could possibly handle this amount of pain without the support of someone I know. And my nurse, I loved her. She was amazing. She's like, Rachel, I'll be here for you. You could squeeze me as hard as you can. And I'm like, no offense, honey. You're just as small as me. I'm 5'2". I'm like, I'm not willing to squeeze you that hard. And I, I have, I have strength, especially now. So they said, okay, you know what? Like your husband could be in here, but he cannot talk. He cannot move. He could, the only thing he could do is hold you up. And that is it. And he cannot pass out. Please do not pass out. Yes. And he, he was amazing. My whole pregnancy, I kept saying, you're going to be the type to pass out. And he was amazing. The whole time he was just whispering in my ear, like when he felt me like gripping him out, he's like, you could do it. You're fine. Just keep breathing. Just keep focusing, like focus on one thing and just breathe with it. And that really helped me get through it. And we had the epidural. He said, wait another 45 minutes before you buzz me again. And it still wasn't working. And my nurse was like, I don't believe you. 
Huh. And this, I had two nurses. So the nurse that I loved happened to be a Jewish religious woman. And the other one, I don't know what she was. That's not relevant really. But um, she was like, I don't believe you. And the other nurse came in and she goes, okay, Rachel, what do you feel you need right now? I was like, I need to be on all fours. I'm like, I can't labor like this anymore. I'm like, I can't be on my butt. I'm like, it hurts. Yeah. And unfortunately, that I think is the worst part of when an epidural doesn't work because when you don't have an epidural, you have a lot more freedom of movement and mm-hmm. um, women naturally want to move during labor and getting into different kinds of positions like all fours can take the pressure off of your back. But I think the worst part of getting an epidural that doesn't work is that you're stuck in bed, which is like so counterintuitive to mm-hmm. coping with labor. <laughs> yes. And I'm one radical woman who... The nurse was like, Rachel, I'm so sorry. You really can't get on all fours right now. Like when you have the epidural, you just, you don't have the strength to hold yourself in that position. So I looked at her. I was like, watch. (laughs) And I rolled over on all fours and I held myself up. And I'm like, and if you think I'm rolling back, I'm not. We have to reverse a little from when I rolled over onto all fours because the epidural didn't work. So my nurse said to me, Rachel, there's not much I could give you for the pain, but I could give you a sedative. I do not remember the name. Maybe you know it. Statal? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So she gave me that and she said for four hours, you need to not fight it. She said, if you fight falling into the slumber state, it will not work. So she said, succumb to it. Let yourself relax. That's so interesting. I haven't heard anyone say that before, but I like that. Um, And like you said, statal is a sedative. It kind of makes you sleepy. It doesn't fully take away the pain of contractions, but it kind of makes you care a little bit less. Different people react differently to it. Um, some people it works great for, and other people feel like this feeling of not being in control and like drunk and, and not a great, um, just th- they really hate it. So um, that that's that's kind of what what this drug is it, it could work really great for some and it cannot work so great for some so let's hear how you experienced it so she put that in around 8 30 in the morning on tuesday and she told me let it that's actually not true she did 10 30 at 8 30 we put that a second epidural were you checked at any time after i was still four centimeters so you were checked before you got the epidural for the second time yes before you sat up for the second time yeah because they probably just wanted to see if your if your labor was so close to you being able to just push the baby out and get it you know get it over with that way sooner than having to redo the whole procedure yes so they saw that i wasn't near the end so they said okay we'll place the second one at 8 30 it wasn't working 10 30 they came in and said we're going to give you that sedative and she said my patients who fight it my patients who try to stay awake who try to control the situation it doesn't work your body needs to be in the most relaxed state right now to allow itself to deal with this pain so it could just progress into labor as far as it can go until the end. She's like, you're trying to get to the end zone right now. She's like, so sleep. And you're basically in a lucid dream. You hear everything going on. You hear the machines beeping. You feel every contraction, but you're literally sleeping. It's the wildest experience. And funny enough, my alarm for something, I set an alarm for 12 o'clock weekly. I don't even remember what it was at this time because it's no longer going off. It went off. I forgot to shut off my alarm. So two hours later, I did not wait the four hours. It woke me up and I heard it and I was like, okay, I'm not getting up. I'm not getting up. I'm going to still stay asleep. I'm going to close my eyes. I kept hearing it. And my husband's also sleeping because finally I'm not screaming in his ear. And I'm just like waiting for him to get up and shut it off. And he's like out cold. And I'm like, is anyone going to come in and shut off that stupid alarm? So finally, I'm just like, oh my gosh. So I buzz my nurse. I wake up and I'm like, can you just shut off that alarm? And I couldn't fall back asleep. (laughs) I'll bet you she was not the happiest to get called in for that. Oh, she was so not. And she's like, Rachel, why didn't you shut off your phone? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I didn't know I had the alarm on. I'm, I'm in labor. And she shut it off for me. And I looked at her and I was like, 
I need to use the bathroom right now. Ooh. She's like, no, you don't. I'm like, yes, I do. Let me go to the bathroom. Code She's word like, for you're fully dilated. And when you say you need to go to the bathroom, did you mean you needed to poop? Yes. Mm-hmm. I literally was like, I need to poop right now. I'm going to poop my pants. She's like, no, you're not. You are you're nearing labor, like the end of it. You're you're gonna deliver soon. And I was like, honey, I have never known so much in my life that I need to poop right now. And she's like, <laughs> I've been a labor and delivery nurse for years. You are not going to use the bathroom. And I'm like, give me a bedpan right now. And she's like, you could sit in one for as many hours as you like, but you're not going to go. She gave me one anyway. She was very right. She knows her stuff. She's been in it for years. <laughs> and Did anyone check you at that point? So she said, I'm going to have someone come in. So 30 minutes later, my OB came in and he was like, oh, you're nine and a half centimeters. Mm-hmm. So in two hours, I went from four to nine and a half mm-hmm. with just letting my body relax. Yeah, letting your body relax. And I really like to emphasize that you were having so many contractions for so many hours. And even though you stayed at four, I want people to know that that doesn't mean that it's going to take you that long to continue to dilate. It's not a linear progression. And those contractions were still doing something. And hence, you went from four to nine and a half in two hours uh, or two and a half hours. And the relaxation definitely helps. Definitely. When we relax, we allow um, our body to respond in the most effective way to the oxytocin that's causing the labor and the contractions when we're nervous our sympathetic system that fight or flight response kind of takes over and it can prevent us from progressing our labor as well as um it it can so that was probably all part of what was going on for you yes that was um i was so sure that i had to use the bathroom so that was very funny for me and, and you had a catheter, a urinary catheter in you, right? Because you had the yes. epidural. Mm-hmm. Yes, I had the urinary catheter in me. My OB, funny enough, was there the entire time that I was in labor. And when I was ready to push, finally hit 1230. And they said, okay, we're going to get you ready. You're going to start to get ready. And at that point, I said, I need to roll over. I'm like, if I'm going to labor, I can't sit like this anymore. And when I woke up, she was like, honey, you need to, you need to, you need to stay like that. And I was like, no. Actually, I don't. I've seen many times that women labor on all fours. I've seen women labor in squatting positions. I did my research. It's in the What to Expect book. And this is what I'm expecting. I am going to go on all fours. First of all, can I stop you? I want to go back to the medical student. But before we do, because I followed you on Instagram and that memory stands out to me very much. But um, I, I just need to acknowledge the amazing advocacy, self-advocacy skills that you have. And unfortunately, that's all too rare because the healthcare providers, like I say all the time in the hospital, they are in a position of great power and there's no such thing as you have to or you're not allowed to. Um, It's all about informed consent and you can refuse and consent to anything that Uh, you wish to, you have that autonomy. It's always important to make sure that you're making an informed decision where you have the information. And like you said, you got from reliable sources information telling you that you can push in all different kinds of positions if your body will support it. With epidurals, oftentimes I have patients squatting and going in other positions it's kind of rare to do all fours with epidurals, but I, I have had it done with patients. But that's so great that you were not intimidated by them telling you you have to, and you were able to tell them, I understand and know different, and I can do it in other ways, even though it may be more convenient for the medical staff for you to do it in the way that they're telling you you need to do it. Yes, it was hard to do, but to any mom or mom to be listening the next time you're in any medical situation educate yourself as much as you can beforehand if you don't have the time because sometimes we have emergencies ask all the questions you need to ask and if you're not getting the proper respect the proper time to be educated ask to switch your provider there's, there's no reason. There's other doctors on staff. There's other nurses on staff. If someone's not clicking when you are in labor, they need to leave because 
it's all about people who will support you the way you need to be supported. Otherwise, it's traumatic and birthing, if it goes smoothly, is traumatic enough. And it could be extremely empowering when you have the right yes. support, so much so that the two experiences can be like polar opposites, where if you have the right support, even if it's a difficult birth, you can feel very empowered and yeah. like on such a high and it can be the same exact birth, but if you're disrespected and if you're talked down to and infantilized, then you can have the polar opposite feeling of just powerlessness. So good for you. That's amazing. And that's that's really, I, I would love to encourage anyone listening to this not to be afraid, not to be afraid to be that quote unquote difficult patient, but to very respectfully, like Rachel is telling us here, assert yourself and say, I read otherwise, and this is how I would like to do it. Yeah. So I, I rolled over, I showed her I could, and she was like, I don't know what is wrong or right with you, <laughs> but I've never seen a woman able to find the strength to support herself after having an epidural. And I said, honey, I don't know how many times I need to remind you that it literally didn't work, not for a minute. I'm like, if I felt that any part of my body was numb and that I would give out and fall on my stomach, I would never roll over. I'm like, but I know myself, I know my body, and I know that I can support myself. And I will find the strength if it means I'm going to experience less pain even for five minutes. I needed that relief. Did they shut off the epidural at that point? Yes, they shut it off, but I still had the catheter in my back just in case. Yeah, and it takes some time to wear off. It doesn't wear off like the minute after they shut off. It can take like two, three hours, but it sounds like you were toward the end of it wearing off, and I'm happy because like you said, it wasn't working anyway. You needed to move around. Can we just go back to the medical student? When did the medical student enter your situation? The medical student entered my situation when I was ready to push. So not yet. She came in a few minutes. My OB was there the whole time. And then when I was starting to push, she goes, oh, I'm off the clock and leaves. Oh. And his colleague steps in. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Did you meet his colleague before? No, I did not meet her. So I was like, okay, whatever. And that's the thing about using a group that has several providers that switch off call. There are definitely benefits to it in certain ways, but it can be really hard if you've never met that provider in the group before. Um, Or sometimes it can go great and you might be pleasantly surprised and really happy. So she was very sweet. I always wanted to record my birth because I figured you can't go back and you never want to go back, at least to the same birth. (laughs) You might do it again, but definitely not for the same child. And it's better to have the memories and be able to delete them or just not look back at them ever than to not have them at all and regret not having those moments. And I see so many beautiful pictures of when your baby comes out and you just hold them for the first time and I really wanted that for myself. I am so happy that I did it but I set up my tripod, I had it going and funny enough my camera died in the middle Uh. and my phone was there, my husband was snapping some pictures but then you know I really needed him to support me instead. I remember seeing one of your pictures, it also stood out to me where he's like taking selfie while you're like you look like you're yes. super deeply um, involved in dealing with a contraction. And he's just like smiling. Hey, it's like, yay, I'm going to be a dad in a minute. And I'm like, I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> so the nurse brought in a medical student and, and she goes to me, do you mind if this student observes? And I said, I don't mind if anyone observes, but make yourself useful. I was like, medical students can't really practice much. And mind you, like, I wouldn't care if, I was the guinea pig, but obviously for legal reasons, if you don't know much, you're not allowed to practice much. So (laughs) I told her to grab my phone and I showed her what I wanted done. I said, take some videos, take some pictures, just keep holding down the button and it will take a million pictures. And she did that. Did you tell her that you're like an influencer or blogger? No, I didn't. And she was so intimidated at first. And she told me afterwards, she's like, that was my first birthing experience. And I was so nervous that when you would say no, like I really wanted to just get it over with, rip the bandaid off and, and, and watch my first birth. And she said, you were so cool about it. 
she says, I feel like so many moms like don't want anyone else in the room or very closed off about it. And you're like, come on, come on. Just like that's awesome. And and I love how you did it on your terms. You're like, sure, you can come. But here's what I need from you. Yeah. Like you're not doing anything anyway. If she was obviously doing something like taking notes for herself, I wouldn't bother her. But that was really fun. She was very cute. I'm, I'm sure that's going to stand out in her mind forever. Oh, for sure. It's not it's not even like it was her 15th birth that she was watching it was her first one. Like that's so odd to experience. <laughs> but she really enjoyed it. I then was getting ready to push and the doctor came in and I at that point I rolled back over onto my back. It was just it happened to end up being the most functional position to really put all your energy into the pushing. Different things work for different people, but I must say that sometimes it's kind of the demonized position that you shouldn't push on your back. But I do see that for a lot of patients who don't plan on um, pushing that way, myself included, it turns out to be the position that they prefer the most. Yeah, I pushed a few times on all fours and that definitely was helpful, but then it's exhausting. So at a certain point I was like, okay, like I need to sit if I'm also gonna focus all my energy on doing this. It's also really good to keep on changing positions during pushing because again, it opens your pelvis in different ways and helps your baby's head rotate down. Babies come down like a corkscrew. So it helps that process when you're changing positions frequently. Yes. So I started pushing at 1230 and when they said, okay, you're going to get ready to push. And I started going through it. I just looked at Mo and I was like, can we go home? Oh yeah. And he's like, what? So shocked. Didn't know what to do with himself. And I was like, I just need to go home right now. And he's like, I don't know what to say to make you feel better about that. But we can't leave because I don't know how to deliver a baby. He's like, if if it was a safe situation to take you home, I would. But I, I don't think we should leave right now. I must say, you made a very good informed decision. <laughs> so he was like, I'm not taking you home. You could do this. You're fine. Like, you're strong. You're able to do this. And we're going to have a baby soon. It's going to be really wonderful, Rachel. You're good. And I was like, I don't know what you think you're saying to me right now because you're not the one giving birth. You know nothing about this. I was just like so mean. I was like, you know nothing about this. You've never felt this in your life. You don't know what's going to be okay. And he's like, Rachel, you're going to be fine. Like just kept being calm with me. I was the same exact way. Every time my husband said, push, you're doing great. I'm like, shut up. You don't know what I'm doing. You're never going to have to do this. Exactly. <laughs> so Mo was so supportive. He was holding the fan. He was giving me my ice chips. He was holding buckets near me because I kept thinking I had to vomit even though I didn't. <laughs> he was really so supportive. It's very common to feel extremely nauseous and either actually vomit or feel like, like dry heaving yes. when you're in the pushing stage. And it actually works to your benefit because it makes your pelvic floor relax and helps get the baby lower. Yeah. My really good friend who already had had three kids when I was pregnant prepared me and told me about episiotomies. She's an RN. She said, it's not required. She said, episiotomy is where they take a scissor and literally snip all four layers between your vagina and your butt. That small area, that muscle. Yeah, three to four layers. And it used to be more of a widely practiced uh, procedure because yes. it was thought to decrease like more of jagged tearing and the severity of tearing. But in fact, we found that that's not true and it should really only be used in case of real emergency where baby's super low and we just want need to get that baby out very quickly. But otherwise it is, like you said, it is there's no place for it. Unfortunately, there are one too many providers that still practice in the old way and still do it. Mm-hmm. I told my OB originally that no scissors will ever come near me. My body is meant to do what it's naturally meant to do. If I tear, I tear. And he was okay with that. But his colleague stepped in and I'm watching every move that this woman makes. And I see scissors in that woman's hands and I go, uh-uh, where are you going with those? She was like, what do you mean? I'm going to snip you. I'm like, no, you're not. Did you ask permission to cut me like a five-year-old's project no <laughs> wow good for you i'm like you're not going to use those scissors on me at all and she's like what do you mean you're going to tear i'm like and then what she's like well i'll stitch you up i'm like and if you snipped me then what she's like 
I would stitch you up. I'm like, so the end result is still the same. What can be different is my postpartum recovery. You could snip all four layers and make it easier for yourself. Or I could chance not tearing. It might look like I'll tear, but it's possible that my body will suddenly be very elastic and say, oh, never mind, honey, you're good. Or I could tear all four layers on my own. Or I could tear as minimal as one. Or I could tear three. But we don't know unless we try. And you had this whole conversation with her while you were in the middle of pushing. Yes, and... She was like stunned. Her eyes were like so wide. I don't think she's ever had a mother tell her no. I don't think enough moms are educated. And I don't think enough moms realize that the most important thing in your labor and delivery is your voice. It is your voice. One of my friends was forced into having a C-section. And she said it was so traumatic because she so didn't want one. And and there was no discussion. She just felt like she had to give in and it wasn't the way she wanted her birth to go. And that's so traumatic. It's violating. I can't compare it to essentially being taken advantage of in a sexual way, but that violation of being held down to something and not being in control when your insides are screaming no, it does the same effect to you mentally. You need to be able to use your voice to say no. And I'm very happy that I found the courage to do so. It wasn't, it didn't come easy. It may sound like it did, easier said than done, but it felt so freeing afterwards to know that I did that for myself. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And just makes me wonder what would have happened if you weren't of the headspace to look and see scissors in her hands, or what if you weren't educated to understand and know that an episiotomy was completely unnecessary and can have more harmful effects than uh, beneficial effects. And also, it really highlights the importance that you may choose a provider that you love and that is great and that you feel um, will honor all of your birth preferences, but you may end up with a different provider that you completely do not know. And um, that that's also a possibility. Exactly. So it's really important to speak up for yourself. And what you say about feeling when your bodily autonomy is disrespected and violated during birth, it definitely has been shown for people to have the same response as victims of sexual abuse. And not only that, the rate of victims of sexual abuse is alarmingly high, much higher than we think it is. And when someone is giving birth and they are a victim of sexual abuse, that exacerbates and triggers the trauma response in exponential ways. And there are so many people who are wow. victims who we don't know are victims and how much more so important to make sure that we are honoring their bodily autonomy, everyone's bodily autonomy and obtaining consent before any non-emergency interventions are applied, including like vaginal exams. And again, it can be extremely triggering to someone who is a victim of sexual abuse to have vaginal exams. Yes. The one thing I also need to say that is, if you know you're the shyer type, make sure that whatever partner is in the room, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a different family member, a doula, they know what your plan is. So if there's a case where you need to be unconscious and they're doing a C-section or you need, you're, you're not able to push and they knock you out because the epidural did something to you, they need to know exactly what you are and are not okay with so they could be your voice. It's important that you're on the same page with that person and that when they see you're fumbling or you look terrified, they check in with you and they can say the words that you needed to say. 1,000% and... It's so important to have that conversation beforehand and to go through any possible scenario and also for them to know that they can even just amplify your voice if there was something that was unplanned and you maybe change course of how you thought you were going to want things such as people who don't want an epidural and then decide that they do want an epidural for them to know when that truly is a desire of yours and to help you amplify that instead of say, oh no, but honey, you said before you didn't want an epidural, you know? So to know that things can change and to be able to pick up on the signals yes. of when you truly desire the change. I hope moms feel encouraged about this. And unfortunately you are rare 
in that you were able to speak up for yourself so well. And um, I'm, I'm proud of you that you told the provider not to cut you. And, and just picturing her stunned face just makes me laugh. Thanks. Yeah, and it's funny because I have me saying that on video because Ooh. we were getting ready. And I was listening to it again and I was like, oh yeah, that happened. And it was so nice to hear myself saying like, excuse me, no, that's not okay. And you're not going to do that. And she was just so stunned that I would even, I guess, go against her medical opinion. And thankfully she respected it. She's like, okay, well, if that's what you want, just be aware that you might tear and it could be very bad. And I'm like, could be, we'll find out. Like, I'm okay finding out. Yeah, like you're for sure going to tear if you get an episiotomy, like you said. Yeah. You may not tear or you may not tear to the extent that you would with an episiotomy. Exactly. Which is really what the research shows, that it doesn't decrease tears in certain areas or anything like that. It it actually just worsens it and worsens the recovery. So, I mean, I would imagine if she had those scissors out, that means you were pretty close to crowning. Yeah, she quickly put them down. I was crowning, I think, three minutes later, AY was born. The weirdest feeling, I have to say, of that, like, release, like, the head, okay, that's like, you're like, wow, that's a lot. And then just when the rest of the body slides out, you're like, oh my gosh, like, it was weird. It was really weird. I don't think I'll ever forget that feeling, which is funny because so many people say like, oh, you don't really remember it. But I also think because I have the video to rewatch it, like I could feel it in my body happening. And I'm just like, ooh, that was odd. They put him on me right away. The biggest job of giving birth during pushing is pushing the baby's head out. The baby's head circumference, unlike normal adult people or children, a newborn's head circumference is larger than their shoulder circumference. And they're made that way in order to come out. So once the head's out, it's just usually one or two more pushes and the rest of the body's out. Yes. So he came, he did not immediately cry and they put him on me and they were kind of trying to like wake him up a little bit. So then I was getting like nervous, but I was like so excited to hold him and see his face. They're like, okay, we need to take him quickly. And they're like, we just need to clear him out and also get him under the warmer. I was like, okay, fine, whatever. They took him and I told Mo, follow him immediately. You're watching that child like a hawk. And he's like, no problem. He... Funny enough, took a selfie video of him and AY started crying for the first time. And Mo's like, I'm your dad, like, welcome to the world. It was the sweetest thing. And then he came to me afterwards and he was like, okay, so new. Like, how do you feel? The baby's out. AY was getting cleaned up. And I was like, lighter. <laughs> That's the only thing I was able to think of. I was like, I feel lighter. It's just nice to feel like empty. In every sense, not just physically, right? Literally. And they put him on me and it was just, it was so nice to feel that connection immediately to him. And those tiny little hands, like grabbing your finger for the first time. I don't know. I can't, I can't describe the feeling. It's just like, it's euphoria. It's euphoria on this planet with no drugs, like <laughs> straight, full-blown happiness. It was wonderful and that was my birthing story. It was really interesting. There were a lot of ups and downs, a lot of moments where I, I felt, you know, I, I can't do this and you know, maybe maybe I won't do this again. Maybe this will be it. But honestly, for those of you who feel that in the moment or are pregnant and scared and listening to this, once the baby is here, the second you start seeing them growing out of that newborn stage, you're like, okay, maybe I'm ready to do this again. <laughs> part of you is like that and part of you is like, I'm very busy right now with one baby. And some more than others and less than others really depends on so many details of the birth, but more so I would say you really do forget the difficulty of it and in your case feel so empowered um, that you were able to do it and do so much more than you thought you could do. And when women uh, scream, I can't do this, and I tell them, no, 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 you can. I've seen many women say exactly what you said, <laughs> that I can't, and, and you can, you will. Um, and, and that's what happened for you, and that's what happens for so many women. But, Rachel, you've left out a super important detail here. What? Did you tear? Oh, yes. <laughs> I did. But funny enough, she never really told me how much. I don't know if she was like nervous too after that 
interaction with me. I think that if you would have torn a lot, she would have told you and she would have said, I told you so. Just just guessing from the kind exactly. of... Exactly. But she said to me, I said, how many stitches do I have? Like, just so I know, like, if they fall out on their own, like, what should I be looking for to make sure everything's good to go? And she was like, oh, you have one continuous stitch. I'm like, what does that mean? Yeah, so it's probably just one layer, which we call first degree tear. Like you said, with the episiotomy, it's a third or fourth degree. And first or second degrees, especially in first-time moms, are really common. The majority of first-time moms have a first or second degree tear. The degrees of tearing are really what the most important information is. And um, if you're hearing this, then just ask your provider, what degree tear did I get? And you're entitled to know that. So I don't fully know that but I also switched OBs because I moved. So (laughs) I don't think I'm going to go back and ask. Yeah. Well, they do get your medical records. I wanted to know for years after I had my first, what kind of degree tear I got because it was, you know, healing was pretty bad. And I still never found out because they just wrote that I had a perineal tear and didn't write what degree. So I don't know how that was acceptable, but that's what happened to me. (laughs) I'm so happy that it was so beautiful. And We don't have enough time to go into your postpartum recovery, both the immediate part of it and then the months following. I can't wait to interview you at a future time about that. I'm very excited to share it with you. Yeah, I'm hoping to do a series of just interviewing moms, many moms on their postpartum stories because we talk so much about birth stories, but um, we need to give more attention to the postpartum experiences of women. Thank you so much, Rachel, for giving of your time so generously and telling us your birth story for being so vulnerable and open and for giving such great, empowering advice and tips to other women on how they can handle their labors, especially being in a hospital environment and asserting themselves and speaking up for themselves. Thanks again, Rachel. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning into the Happy Birthway Podcast. Head over to Your Wedded Academy on Instagram to continue the conversation. You'll find the link in the episode show notes, as well as links to any additional resources, products, and services mentioned here. If you love listening to this show, you can help it grow by sharing it with your friends and rating and reviewing it. To stay in the loop when new episodes are released, make sure to subscribe. Remember that your health needs are unique and require individualized medical advice. The podcast is not a replacement, and some of the information may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances. My mission is to educate you so that you can confidently collaborate with your healthcare team. I believe that a healthy mom and healthy baby are simply not enough. We also need a happy mom with an empowering birth experience.